Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of the sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to his brother Abel, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground, and now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground and from your face. I shall see, uh, I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any man who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God and was not, for God took him. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. By faith Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. The word of the Lord. Ryan's an old jokester. Sorry for the delay as I get my notes back in order. Gotta watch him when he does prayers of the people. Likes to do things to your manuscript. 
Boys and girls, as we do our, as we go through our passage today, I'd love for you to draw me a picture, and draw a picture of what you would like to sacrifice or what you would like to give to God. If Jesus came to your house this afternoon, what is it that you would like to give Him? And draw Him a picture of what you would like to give Him. And I would love if you would tell your parents later on when you go home why you chose to give Jesus that. Maybe for you. Adults, you parents, ask yourself the question today as we start, what do I sacrifice for? What do I sacrifice for and give so that I might receive it? Now last week we started our our new sermon series here in Hebrews 11, it's called The Hero Story. Hebrews 11, it's a famous passage, it's a well-known chapter in the Bible that is often referred to as the heroes of the faith. An old professor of mine used to give you a, give us a, a brilliant mental picture of it. He said, Hebrews 11 is like this uh, long hallway in a museum. And on both sides of the hallway are the pictures of each of these heroes that have gone before us. And at the end of the hallway is a door. Now under each of these pictures is each of these heroes' stories. But when you look at the picture, all of the heroes are actually pointing us to that door at the end of the hallway. But we won't understand what's out the, on the other side of that door until we first understand these stories of those who have gone before us. So if, we're, so if you weren't able to be with us last week, and you're just joining us today, we've titled it The Hero Story because we're exploring the idea of what's called the monomyth. It's called the monomyth. Joseph Campbell is an anthropologist that studied heroes and myths and legends of all cultures, of all times, and all places, all the religious stories, all the hero stories of the world. And he sets forth this idea that there's a common thread that you can draw of in every, through every story of every culture, of every race, every religion, of every hero. There's this basic structure to the story that transcends time and place because the hero story is actually ingrained and in the fabric of the human mind. To have a hero story is what it means, part of what it means to be human. So this common structure or basic storyline he calls the monomyth, the one myth. So Campbell says whether you're watching a Pixar film with your kids or studying the life of Jesus or the, the gods of Hinduism, there's a basic set of ingredients that form this basic plot line of every story, and it goes like this. A hero ventures forth from the world of common day into a region of supernatural wonder, Fabulous forces are there encountered, and a decisive victory is won. The hero comes back from this mysterious adventure with the power to bestow blessings on his fellow man. Now that might seem a little bit abstract, so let's look at it from something that might be a little bit more familiar. Let's look at it through the eyes of E.T., the extraterrestrial. So E.T., here we have this alien that steps into the unknown of planet Earth to study it, to learn to understand more of the universe, and he's discovered by this young boy. E.T.'s left behind to survive in the unknown. But then he goes and he befriends this young boy and his sister, and later on their older brother. He basically collects this band of disciples. He then opens up to, this world, opens up to them this world of supernatural wonder by making balls levitate around the room. He heals the sick by touching the boy's finger, the cut on his finger, and healing it. He makes things, he brings things back from the dead by bringing dead plants back to life. And then he has to go and flee the, this oppressive U.S. government that's after him, that wants to do tests on him and destroy him and use him for their own benefit. 
So they end up capturing him, they do tests, they torture, to him, they torture him, bring him within an inch of his life, and they put him in a tomb, or maybe an incubator. And then the boy comes along, thinks he's dead, cries and weeps, but wait. Light shines out of the porthole. E.T.'s alive. Incubator opens up. The famous line, E.T. phone home. You have E.T. resurrected from the dead. And then as they flee the government with the disciples, he finally gets back to a spaceship, and as the spaceship goes off up into the sky, it leaves a rainbow for all to see. Behold, the hero story, according to Steven Spielberg. The hero story is everywhere. It's everywhere you look. It's in every time, every place, every culture. It's the same reason why you and your children love Pixar movies and Toy Story and Avengers. You don't grow out of it. You don't grow out of needing heroes because we all need them. Because to be human is to be desperate for a hero. And we all look for them. And why is that? Why do we look for heroes? I think it's because deep within us, at the core of our being, every person knows that something is profoundly wrong with the world. You hear it in your baby's cries the first second they're born. They cry. There's something about being born into this world that we know we're born into a profound conflict. And the common thread of all hero stories is that something is deeply wrong and that we exist inside of this conflict because conflict is at the heart of the hero story. Because here's the point. If you don't have a conflict, you don't need a hero. And it's important that we understand what the conflict is because we can go through Hebrews 11 and have no clue what it's actually talking about. It's important that if you want to understand the true hero story, you have to understand the true conflict. Because if you don't, then all you're going to be looking for is the wrong hero, and any hero that you provide or look for is just going to be superficial. It's going to be trivial. It's going to be trite, and it will rescue you from nothing. Because if all you need is a little bit of advice, look at a gossip column or Ann Landers column or Lucy from Peanuts for five cents. If you're thirsty, a lemonade stand boy could be your hero. But if the problem is epic and cosmic, you need a cosmic hero. You need a God that is not, you need a hero that is not from this world. So as we step into these stories one by one, what is the conflict that Hebrews 11 wants us to see? What's this conflict that requires faith? What is the conflict? Now, as Christians, it's easy to say sin. We just immediately jumped and we say, well, sin is the problem. Sin is the problem. And that's true. But it's not the whole picture. What's the dynamic of sin? He doesn't start off and say, well, sin is the problem and Jesus died for your sins. Here you go, Hebrews. That's it. I know you're going through a really rough time. And all of the, remember, you have to remember the audience in Hebrews is looking to step away from the faith. They already know Jesus died for their sins and they still are willing to leave it because of conflict. They're asking, is it worth it? They're under tremendous persecution and wanting to leave the faith. And when has anybody ever comforted you in conflict by saying, hey, Jesus died for your sins. You remember that. You just trust in Jesus, all right? Go team. It's never satisfied you for a second when you're going through a difficult time. When you go through a difficult time, it makes you wonder, is this even worth it at all? So in verse 3, the author of Hebrews starts with creation. It's a pretty odd place to start if you're talking about trying to talk someone off the ledge of leaving the faith. And so why does he start off here? 
Well, if you think about it, anytime you go through conflict, it always, it always attacks your purpose. It always attacks your, your why questions and your purposes for whatever it is you're doing. So think about, think about your marriage. Think about all the hopes you have when you get married, and it's joyful, and you have all these hopes and all these desires, and then you just kind of have that one weekend where it finally hits, where all it takes is you forgetting to take out the trash, and then that turns into a little bit of an argument, and then it turns into an argument about you know that weekend with the in-laws that didn't go very well. Then it turns into an argument about money, and it just builds and builds and builds, and it's just ugly. And then you go to bed that night, and you think, is this it? Is this all marriage is? Is this what marriage is for? It feels like a hamster wheel. Conflict always challenges your purpose. And the author of Hebrews starts with creation. Because you don't understand the cross until you understand creation. You can't understand the hero until you understand what was lost and what needs to be rescued. So he starts with creation. And every now and then I will... Listen to a very famous atheist named Richard Dawkins. He, uh, to say the least, he absolutely hates Christianity, hates the idea of Jesus, and would call you a fool for believing in it. He fundamentally rejects its claims, and his understanding of purpose and why you even matter in the first place, he describes as this. Billions of years ago, of all the possibilities that could have happened, the Big Bang happened. Of all of the different possibilities that could have happened from the Big Bang, all of the molecules somehow got together and they started to form galaxies and planets and stars and clusters. They began to move around each other. And then if you go inside those solar systems, of all the infinite, infinite number of mathematical possibilities that could have happened, life formed on planet Earth. After the right temperature, after the right circumstances, with water being present. And then after that, life began to actually be self-conscious. It became self-aware. And then of all the infinite possibilities of what could have happened from that original moment of the Big Bang, you happened. You happened. Look at all that had to happen and fall into place just for you to exist. All the mathematical possibilities that are out there and still, the universe created you. It created you. So he says, make the most of it because you are an absolute mathematical improbability. It's crazy that you even exist. So make the most of it. Live your life well because this is it. You know, for me, I hear that and I want to say, that's it? That's the purpose of life? Make the most of whatever I want to do to make the most of, of life? Listen, I struggle to even make a decision about where we're going to go eat, yet alone make a decision about what is going to give my life value and worth. Congratulations, you won the sweepstakes, you're alive. Well, let's talk about that for a second, because it's actually really disappointing for me, because I actually want to feel value and purpose. And when you think about it, of all the infinite possibilities that could have happened, evolution creates me, well, it probably could have done the world something a whole lot better. It could have, in my place, it could have created another Einstein another Isaac Newton, another Gandhi, another Galileo, somebody that would do the world a far better service than me. Or tell that to the woman in the deep forest, congratulations, you exist, even though you'll work for 12 hours for the rest of your life for pennies, seven days a week, congratulations, you're special. You won the sweepstakes. And in the end, if you subscribe to this worldview, however you decide to make the most of your life, 
You're just going to die and you're going to pass into nothingness and you won't be remembered. And if that's honestly true, if that is true, the last thing I want to do is do anything better for mankind. Why? Because I want to go to the beach and get some umbrella drinks because this is as good as it gets. This is as good as it gets. The problem with that view is all it gives you is probability. It doesn't give your life purpose. And that's what you want. You want purpose. You want to know that your life matters. So in this long story of faith, God, the author of Hebrews, starts with God's purposes. Because you're not going to understand the gap from verse 3 to verse 4, from creation to Abel, until you understand that space of what happened in between. What fills that void between verse 3 and 4? Well, if we start with creation, we see God, we see Him speaking, and He creates all things out of nothing. They exist simply because He said so. He creates the sun, the moon, the stars. He creates galaxies and solar systems that stretch for billions and billions of light years across. He creates a star I read recently where if you get 150 million light years of it, you'll be incinerated because it's so big and rages with such intense energy that you'd be incinerated 150 million light years away. That's unbelievable that he speaks that into existence. He speaks that into existence and he makes everything beautiful and perfect and good and he fills it with life. And then he goes one step further. He comes down, picks up the soil, and he forms and he fashions the soil into Adam into man, like an artist, creating a, a tapestry, his most beautiful piece yet. And then he comes up to Adam close and he grabs him by the face and he gets face to face with him and he breathes life into his nostrils. He breathes into him life. And Adam wakes up and the first thing he sees is the loving face of his Creator. Before he sees anything else, he sees his daddy looking back at him with a smile on his face, taking joy and delight in him. Then he gives Adam everything. doesn't withhold a thing from him. He says, all of this is yours. I give it to you. And I don't give it to you and then walk away and leave you and abandon you. I actually work with you and I want you to be like me. I want you to create. I want you to be like your daddy and create and make things beautiful and extend the garden to the ends of the universe. Because he treats Adam like his son. He brings them all the animals just to see what he would name them. Now, if you're a daddy and you bring home a puppy, the kids just go crazy because you brought home a puppy. What's the first question you ask them? What do you want to name it? You ask them, what do you want to name it? And you say, oh, that's a great name. Let's name it that. God does the same thing with Adam where he brings them all the animals to see what they would name him, because that was his precious son. Then God goes one step further, and he creates Eve, puts Adam back to sleep. Adam's two for two. Those are two great ways to wake up. Goes to sleep, creates Eve from his side, and then he wakes up, and he sees this beautiful, naked, unashamed woman. What's he do? He turns into a poet real quick. Sings a little song. He says, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. He says, you belong to me. And I belong to you. We are one. 
I, all, I have been given all of this and I will share it with you. Together they were the kings and queens of creation. They walked and talked in the presence of God. They never felt anxious. They never felt shame. They never had that anxious feeling that made them want to check their phone for one more work email. They never wanted to jump on Candy Crush just to go numb for a second. They didn't reach for one more drink. They just sat in the garden with one another, and they didn't slowly over time fall out of love and just become roommates in the garden. They fell more and more in love with each other. And they fell more and more in love with God. And all they knew was peace and joy and purpose. And it would be really nice if the story ended there. See, Adam and Eve were the kings and queens of creation, and they lost all of it in a moment. Everything fell apart, and they chose a piece of fruit for everything else that was before them. And you know the story, but I want you to think about it from a different perspective today. Because in Genesis 3, we see everything systematically turned upside down. Genesis 3 is where God gives His judgment on why, on what will be the consequences of their sin. He tells Adam, the ground that you used to work, the thing that you used to ma- that made you special, to be, you could create and be like me, it's cursed and it will wage war against you. And you will only get fruit from it by your back-breaking labor and the sweat of your brow. It's going to wage war against you. Then he goes to Eve, and he says, the joy of childbirth is now going to be excruciating for you. What once was the one thing that made you special above all else, your ability to bring life into this world, is cursed. And now your raising children will be now filled with worry, fear, sleepless nights, And this war will not end with you. It will go on with your children and your children will rebel. And all that they had, they lost. And he says to Eve, when you look for comfort from your husband, he won't be there for you. He will be cold. He'll be distant. And he will have other things on his mind and he will look to rule over you. And the love that Eve once felt that made her feel so precious from Adam is now unrequited. Now imagine with me for a second what it had to be like for Adam and Eve to leave the garden after they were kicked out. Imagine the regret they had to feel of knowing they had everything. Everything was perfect. They had all of it. Nothing was withheld from them. All the joy and peace and perfection of the garden. And they lost all of it. They were kicked out and it's gone and they can't get it back. Can you imagine the regret they had to feel? Imagine Eve, the night that she learned that Abel was killed by her son, thinking it's not supposed to be this way. It was never supposed to be this way. We lost all of it. Paradise was ours and it's gone. We were created for so much more. And I think we actually carry those same memories of us, those same memories of our parent, first parents within us. I think we carry those same, that same sense of knowing that you were created for something far more and you're always searching for it, but you never find it. Because deep within you is the memory of Eden that you were created for. And you search high and low for it. 
because the memory still lives within us. G.K. Chesterton has a quote where it's my favorite quote, probably one of them. He says, you can hear that profound sense of loss in every song and all great poetry. You can hear it cry out of the abysses and depths of the broken heart of man that happiness isn't just a hope, but also in some strange manner, a distant memory, and that we are all kings in exile. The heartache and pain in your life that you feel is from falling far short of the purposes that God has for you because you were created to be royalty and live face to face with God. And the conflict in your life is because you have given all that up for a piece of fruit, just like your parents. This is where verse 6 begins to make sense to us. It says, without faith it's impossible to please God, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that He first exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. Why is that even important? Because God still wants to be known. And He still wants to know you. And He still wants to restore the purposes that were lost. He wants to rescue you. He still wants to be known, but any true relationship requires trust. And deep within your heart, you desperately desire the affirmation that only God can give you. You long to remove those memories of guilt and shame and to have God's approval once again. But how do you search for it? How do you try to gain it? You're like Cain and Abel. You do the same thing. You offer sacrifices. You offer sacrifices for it. You offer sacrifices to whatever you think will give you approval. This is exactly what we see in verse 4, where Abel's sacrifice is more acceptable than Cain's. There's a sacrifice that God delights in, and there's a sacrifice that God completely and utterly rejects. What it's telling you in the Abel story is that what you truly want, what your heart truly desires, is shown in your sacrifices. And what do I mean by that? Well, I think you're a modern person. You don't really think that you offer sacrifices. It's an Old Testament idea and that you don't offer sacrifices at all, but that couldn't be further from the truth. You, you offer sacrifices all the time. When you work long hours at work just to get the attention of your boss, to get the next promotion, because you really want to be prepared so you don't feel like a sham or a joke in front of others, or when you never say no to anybody because you're afraid of their disapproval or rejection. Or you always want to be friendly and outgoing and an encourager because you want people to see your value and that you are a good person. You want them to see that you're worth something. Or you offer your good works and your self-righteousness because you don't want anybody to think that you struggle with sin. And in all of these things, what are you doing? You're offering sacrifices. You're looking for approval and something to fulfill those longings. You're looking for a hero to rescue you from your sin and your shame. Your sacrifices always show your hand for what you go on, go all in on, to restore what was lost to you. You want to restore that fatherly acceptance. So what's the difference between Cain and Abel's sacrifice? You see, Abel offered a sacrifice that showed he trusted in the only promise God had ever given anyone up to that point. He'd only given one. You see in Genesis 3.15, after the fall, God promises that He will not abandon the world in the hamster wheel of nothingness and meaninglessness, but He will actually send the one who will be wounded. 
He will send the one who will crush the serpent. And in that great battle, he will come out victorious, but he is going to suffer. He's going to be bruised and he's going to be wounded. And Abel offered a sacrifice that showed that he trusted that God was his only hero. He trusted that God was the only possible one that could save him and rescue him. See, there's a sense of reciprocation that faith produces in our response to God's grace. Claiming the faith is not claiming Jesus died for your sins. Claiming the faith is supposed to shape everything about your life. Every action, every moment, every breath. So what do I mean by the fact that faith should be this reciprocated response to God's grace? Well, Abel offered a sacrifice that said, Daddy, when I grow up, I want to be just like you. He offers the same thing back to God that God offered to him as a sign that he would one day remove their sin and their shame. Abel knows that God promised to one day send a wounded one to restore what was lost. And he covered Adam and Eve's nakedness by wounding an animal. And Abel offers back to God an offering that showed that he really understood the promises of God. And he understood that God is the only one that can follow through on those promises. He offered a sacrifice to God that says, I know that one day the one you will send will sacrifice and suffer greatly. So I trust you, and this is my offering, and I will give you the best that I have. I will do without. I will suffer in this small way and trust in you that you will provide. Because what you offer God is simply an expression of what you truly desire. Abel gives out an offering that shows his hope and faith in God. He doesn't do it out of obligation. Here's the difference between Abel and Cain. When you walk home with flowers and you toss them on the table and say, there you go, sweetie, and then go and sit down and watch TV, you will never hear the words from your wife, oh, my hero, thank you, I feel so loved. You don't give out of obligation. And that's exactly what Cain does. You see Cain come along and he offers a sacrifice and God completely rejects it because Cain wanted it on his terms. Cain comes along and says, there God, I tied this week. I tied this month. I prayed this month. I served once. I haven't sin- struggled with that sin in a long time. Why are you allowing this to happen to me in my life? He offers sacrifices that are petty. It shows that he doesn't even want God at all. But at the end of all that, Cain says, why aren't you giving me joy and satisfaction? He says, bless me. Why aren't you blessing me and affirming me? And God simply responds by saying, because it's me, it's not me that you want. You don't want me at all. You don't believe that it's me that actually would fulfill all those dark places in your heart. You don't believe that it's actually me that will undo the brokenness in the world. He says, Cain, you don't really want to know me. This is not a gift that shows that you want my love and affection. And instead of listening, Cain doesn't listen. Instead of asking the question, God, you are so precious. What can I offer you? What am I withholding from you? Tell me so that I can learn to give it. He doesn't ask that. He goes the other way and he murders Abel. Kills him. He's offered the opportunity of repentance, but he doesn't. He goes the other way and it snowballs and he kills his brother. So what do you do when you offer sacrifices? I think we do the same thing. 
What do you do when you search for approval and acceptance from others? What do you do? You murder them. You kill them. You have high hopes for a relationship. When you're the person that can't say no because you're afraid of being rejected, but they don't actually seem to value you in return, you resent them in your heart. When it feels like other people don't want to get to know you, when you try to get to know them, you write them off. When your spouse doesn't appreciate the ways that you've tried to love them, it's not an invitation to try to serve them more. You just instead give them the cold shoulder. And when you feel convicted about sin in your life, you look at other people around you and you say, at least I'm not like that guy. At least I'm not like that guy at all. And in all of these moments where our hearts crave acceptance and affirmation, we don't look at them as opportunities to satisfy that loss by actually pursuing God. We don't trust that these are those little moments where we can pursue God and believe that He has rescued us and He's worth it to pursue Him. Because the conflict is we don't believe that God is worth pursuing. Because we don't believe that knowing Him is better than anything else. We talked about an atheist a second ago. Let me just say this. There's a really thin line between an atheist and a Christian that only gives God two hours on Sunday and a spare change whenever he has it. What's the difference? It's still a life unaffected and unchanged by God because it's not worth it and it's not beautiful. You have to ask yourself the question, what do I want? Eternal life, that's why you believe in the Gospel? Forget about eternal life. If God doesn't love you, if God just wants sacrifices and offerings because He's a hoarder just like us, then it's not worth it to spend eternity with a God like that. It's not worth it to spend eternity with a God that isn't worth anything I could possibly give up in this world. He begs you to go all in on Him because He's worth it. You have a God that claims that He is worth your entire life. That's a God at least worth pursuing because if He's not worth everything, then He's no God at all. He's pathetic, he's weak, and he's pitiful. But he knows who he is, and he has come to rescue you. Every week we have the opportunity to either be Cain or Abel. Cain had the opportunity to repent, but instead he goes the other way. He doesn't repent at all. He goes and he murders his brother. He had the opportunity to learn to let go of the satisfaction that he really wanted, to learn to let go of his anger and learn how to actually offer right sacrifices to God, to learn to have God teach him what it truly means to pursue him and know him. He had the opportunity to let go of the things of this world and allow God to be his joy and his delight, but he doesn't. And that's where the Enoch story makes sense. The word it used for Enoch that he walked and talked and pleased God, is the same word that the Old Testament uses for repentance. Repentance. My friends, every Sunday when you confess, you are not doing a laundry list of things that you need forgiveness for. It's not that simple. It's an opportunity to see all those little moments that you've forsaken God and wanted to be affirmed by something else. 
seeing all those little moments where you miss God and you chose something else. It's looking at those moments and saying you chose a piece of fruit instead of your loving Father that wants to know you. And it's a weird thing where Abel offers right sacrifices and he's killed for it. And then in the very next verse, it basically says that Enoch lives the life of a repenter and he never dies. There's no conflict so great, not even death, that can keep those who pursue God from Him and those that God has pursued. Not even the conflict of death is more powerful than God. So what are you sacrificing for in your life? Is it approval from others? Is it the approval of your industry? Do you sacrifice for social status and affluence? What's your week filled with? What's it look like? What's your time go to, your money? So you learn that all your sacrifices and offerings are only attempts to fill that void and loss that was lost to you. And until you understand that only God can fill it, you'll always be unsatisfied. You'll always blame others. You'll always wonder if this is it. And you'll always be east of Eden. And you'll never get back. So what do you want to sacrifice this week? Maybe for some of you, it needs to be your pride and you actually need to confess sin to someone. Maybe kind of let go of that image of wanting people to think how righteous you are and how holy. Maybe confess to someone that you're not. Maybe you need to sacrifice your fear and actually get to know someone. Get to know someone that you've maybe wanted to get to know and actually move towards them. And realize that that fear of rejection is keeping you from so much more. Maybe some of you need to sacrifice your comfort. Maybe just a little bit of sleep this week. Get up earlier and actually just sit and pray. You pursue Him in all the little moments of your life. But it's only by faith that you see beyond the treasures and playhouses of this world and see the world that God will give you. Because it's the world where He exists and He will restore everything. But you know what? It's still all the toys and trinkets of this world weren't even good enough for Jesus either. And even the new kingdom and the new creation isn't enough for Jesus to even hoard. Second First Corinthians 15 it shows Jesus that after He returns, wins the battle, He's given the entire universe. He's given the entire kingdom. And what does He do? He turns to God, the Father, and He hands it all back to Him so that God will be all in all. That has to be a magnificent God. Do you want to know Him? Well, it's in those little moments where you can let go of the things of this world and know that God in those moments will grab your face once again and will come close and He'll breathe life back into you that you desperately desire. He's your only hero. And He's the best. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You that You are good and You are gracious. We thank You that You... Thank You that You did not leave us in a broken world. You did not turn Your back upon us, but You... You stepped into this broken world and You gave Yourself. You gave Your life to us. 
You did not withhold anything from us. It's amazing how we can so easily turn away from such a profound and tremendous gift. Father, we ask that you would give us the gift of faith so that we can learn to trust more and more in your promises. We can learn to wait for the world to come and not the world that we live in. We ask that you would continue to pry our hands from the things of this world and teach us how to embrace you in every moment of every day. Because knowing you is the most beautiful and profound thing we could ever be given. We ask this in your holy name. Amen.